So growing up, um, I loved watching cartoons, as any child does. And some of my favorite cartoons, I was big into He-Man for a long time, and the Transformers, and G.I. Joe, and the Ninja Turtles. But for whatever reason, it was very important to my dad that I love the things that he loved when he was growing up. So in addition to all of those cartoons, uh, he made sure that I was well acquainted with the Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies, and I have great memories sitting on the floor of my living room watching Huckleberry Hound and Magilla Gorilla and, and Yogi Bear, uh, just all the classics. But one of my favorites, and one of, it's probably one of my favorites because it was his favorite, was Rocky and Bullwinkle. And if you've ever watched Rocky and Bullwinkle, it's kind of like a sketch show, but it's a cartoon. It has different segments. And, and one of the segments on the Rocky and Bullwinkle show was called Dudley Do-Right. And it was one of my favorite segments. Dudley Do-Right was this Canadian Mountie. He was like the epitome of all that is good. And his, his foil, his arch nemesis, was a man by the name of Snidely Whiplash. And I think we have a picture of Snidely Whiplash there's Snidely Whiplash. Snidely Whiplash was the guy who was always uh, tying Nell to the train tracks. He was the epitome of evil. But it was like kid-friendly evil. It wasn't too scary that I couldn't sleep at night. But he was like, you know that he's evil because he's twisting his mustache and he's, he's got that evil smile. Like, he's wearing all black. Snidely Whiplash. He was the epitome of evil in my mind. And I liked that because it was easy. Snidely Whiplash is evil because that's who he is. He knows it, he embraces it, he ties Nell to the train tracks because he's evil. That's what he does. Reality is far more nuanced than that. It's much more complex than that. You don't see an evil person because they're twisting their mustache and wearing a black top hat. Nobody except for maybe a few outliers actually believe that they're the villain. Like, Thanos believed that he was the hero by snapping half of all existence out of creation. For you Marvel fans. Like, he thought that he was the good guy. He had his motivation. He had his justification for doing what he did, though he killed half of everything that lived. It's not history, for those of you who don't know where I am, it's okay. Just know that within, everybody believes that they are doing the right thing. What if, though, what if that after you followed your heart, because that's what, that's what Disney has discipled us to do, just follow your heart, and it'll all work out in the end. What if after you followed your heart, you find out that you're actually not the hero? Maybe I'm the villain for ruining the end of, uh, of Avengers, if you haven't seen that yet, so... This morning we're going to look at two Proverbs that basically say the same thing. Almost word for word, but a little bit different. And when God repeats himself, uh, that means lean in. Uh, so Proverbs 16.2 and Proverbs 21.2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. And every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. What this proverb is telling us is that none of us think that our motivations are bad, but our heart is deceitful, and we have to learn not to trust it quite so much. See, we're, we're so easily self-deceived. 
Our hearts lie to us all the time. We believe that we're always right, but in reality, there's no possible way that we can be. We're limited, we're mortal, we're frail, we're fallible. I want you to hear what Jesus said about, the, about our, our nature. Uh, in John chapter 2, uh, Jesus has just performed his first miracle, and a lot of people actually believed in his name, it says. John 2.24 says, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It's not a compliment. And if you look at Jeremiah 17.9, says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I've not seen that, that Bible verse on a greeting card yet. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But it's real. And if we can lean into that understanding, we can actually move forward and grow. I have a a little comic strip here uh, that kind of illustrates the point. This is from adam4d.com, a man named Adam Ford. Um, So you have the little comic strip. This is a, a difficult decision, Mom says. In times like this, you have to learn to trust your heart Trust your heart, sweetie. And then the next frame, little boy looks, okay, heart, what's it going to be? And there's your heart, sin. And then the next frame, yeah. That kind of, I mean, if we can be honest with ourselves, this is who we are. Let's not lie to ourselves and let's not lie to God. Don't get me wrong, we're not all bad. It's not like we're only always evil. No, I'm not saying that in the slightest. We are all made in the imago Dei, the image of God. We are made in his very image, which means that we get to mirror him. Our attributes are similar to some of his attributes. But we have to understand that everything that we do is tainted in some way by sin. So for example, um, a, a little while ago, I was in the drive-thru at Dunkin' Donuts, and, uh, as I often am, and uh, there was a police officer behind me, and so I decided, you know what, I'm going to pay for this guy's, I'm going to pay whatever he orders. So I, I drive up and I tell the, the cashier, I want to pay for the guy behind me, and great, paid for it. I felt really good about myself. It was like, and I never, I never saw him, he never got, gave me a thank you, but then I was driving away and I was like... You know, did I do that because I love him? Or, or did I do that because it made me feel good about myself? Am I a little bit proud about the fact that I just did that? So even, even my altruistic actions are marred by sin. It's kind of selfish. The heart is deceitful above all things. And that proverb says that the Lord weighs the heart. Like if you had a friend who lied to you as often as you lie to you, you would stop hanging around with that friend because he keeps getting you into trouble. Yet somehow, when we lie to ourselves, we double down and we believe next time it'll work out. Next time it'll work out. I'm not gonna do that again. And when we have a society that, that is going by its own moral compass and, and following their hearts, it's not gonna turn out well. I have for you this poem called The Creed, Turner's Creed written by a man named Steve Turner. I believe it was the late 80s when he wrote it. So Turner's Creed. 
We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe that everything is okay, as long as you don't hurt anyone, to the best of your definition of hurt, and to the best of your knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe the taboos are taboo. We believe that everything is getting better despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated. You can prove anything with evidence. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, although we think his good morals were bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same. At least the one that we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that after death comes the nothing. Because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all, excepting perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in Masters and Johnson, what's selected is average, what, what is average is normal, what's normal is good. We believe in total disarmament. We believe that there are direct links between warfare and bloodshed. Americans should beat their guns into tractors and the Russians would be sure to follow. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth, accepting the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. If that doesn't sum up the society in which we live and breathe that is discipling us every minute of every day, I don't know what does. But the question is, Okay, if we're going to say that there is some sort of morality, by what standard does that morality have sway? Is it just an internal real, uh, morality that is what's right for me might not be right for everybody? What's good is, is, is it adjusts over time and, and place? Or is there an external standard for morality that actually instituted it and knows what it is. Because if, if morality is just internal, if it's just what's right for me might not be right for you, then what happens when it butts up against somebody else's morality? Then it's just might makes right. Whoever, it, it's, it's just whoever's stronger or bigger wins. If we're just stardust bumping into stardust, then, then none of this ultimately matters, but if there is a moral lawgiver, then it means that we should probably open our ears and listen to what he says. But we've become so autonomous as a people. I read an article about an issue. Well, I read part of an article about an issue, but I am convinced and I am, I, I, experts can't tell me anymore because I'm, I've read part of an issue, like part of an article on an issue. Like if that doesn't sum us up, we're so 
opinionated and we, we butt heads with one another, shouldn't there be an external source for that morality? But the Lord weighs the heart. The Lord knows your motivations behind everything that you do. Now, I'm a why guy. Like, I want to know why. I'll go to war with you and I won't stop until it's done or I'm dead, but I need to know why. I'm not saying that's a good attribute about me, but, but why is God interested in our hearts and our motivations? Why is it not good enough for him for me to just do the right thing? Why does he want me to do the right thing with the right motive? The answer is actually surprisingly beautiful. A man named A.W. Tozer, uh, in his book, um, I think it's Knowing God, said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you because that's going to that's gonna determine every other decision that you make. That's going to determine every other thought that you have. So who do you understand God to be? Like what comes into your mind when you think about God? Is he, is he some kind of old grandpa who you visit on Sundays who just exists to kind of cheer you on? Is he some kind of crotchety old miser who's just waiting for you to slip up so he can yell at you, get off my lawn? Is he some sort of divine spy butting his nose into places that it doesn't belong, looking over your shoulder? Or is he some kind of like hippie God who just exists to give you the green light on whatever you decide to do? Is it some sort of amalgam of all of those things? What is God's primary identity? One of the most unique things about the Christian faith, the Christian faith is unique in a lot of ways, but one of the most unique things about the Christian faith is the idea that God exists as a trinity. There is one God who has eternally existed in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's not a contradiction. A contradiction would be that there is one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there is not one God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a contradiction. There is one God who has eternally existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is a mystery, but it is not a contradiction. It's something that I can't fully wrap my mind around. And if you meet somebody who says, the Trinity is kind of like, then the next words out of his mouth or her mouth are probably going to be heresy. So, like, just listen intently and then say, well, actually, maybe he's not like a four-leaf clover because you've actually just divided everything. Or he's, maybe he's not like an ice cube or water or gas because he exists in all of those forms at the same time. The closest I've come to understanding the idea of the Trinity is that of a, of a musical harmony. And it can't complete the picture because he's so much bigger. Like, if you can show me a worm, I think it was John Wesley said, you show me a worm who understands a human, I'll show you a human who understands God. But the closest that I can come to understanding the idea of the Trinity is a musical harmony. When you have three singers singing three parts, all singing the same note, one in alto, one in tenor, one in bass, whatever, then they're all singing, say, the key of A. 
But A alto is not A tenor, and A tenor is not A bass. That's the closest I can come to understanding. But why do you think that we understand, why do, when we hear harmony, why is it beautiful to us? Because it's pointing back to the harmony that is the Trinity. But the idea that God is a Trinity is not just some sort of add-on. It's absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. And it solves problems that all other religions and all other worldviews cannot solve. Because what was God doing prior to creation? What is his primary identity? If his primary identity is creator, then he cannot be who he is until he has created something. He's dependent upon something external to himself. If his primary identity is judge, then he cannot be who he is until he has someone or something to judge. He is dependent upon something outside of himself. If his primary identity is even redeemer, then he cannot be who he is until he has something to redeem. But if his primary identity is father, he can be that in the confines of the Holy Trinity because he has always been a father. He has always been the son. He has always been the Holy Spirit. He has always existed in a perfect community of love and harmony and he is dependent on nothing external to him. He needs nothing outside of himself. This is why he relates to us as father because that's who he is. So why does he weigh our hearts? Precisely because he is relational. Precisely because he is love. Precisely because he wants us and he wants the best for us. He's interested in our motives, not just our obedience. He's not a puzzle that we need to solve. He's a father that wants to adopt us into his family. And the fact that he is in need of nothing frees us because he doesn't need your obedience. He doesn't need your love. He doesn't need anything from you. It doesn't add a single thing to who he is. Yet somehow, he wants us. The Trinity means that he is completely self-sufficient within himself. No need for us, and yet he still wants us. Like an employer-employee relationship you, like if, as an employer, you don't care necessarily what your employees' motivations are. As long as they get the job done well on time, it's on my desk when I asked for it, I don't care why you do it. But that's not love. That's not the relationship that God wants with us. He's not some divine boss who's waiting to give you a performance review. He's a father who loves you. I had a conversation with my kids at the dinner table a little while ago, and, um, and I hope, I think, I hope I did it well. Uh, they left the conversation understanding a little bit more, and I think feeling more loved. 
uh, it's an easy conversation to kind of go sideways. But I, I asked them, hey, guys, do, do I need you? And they thought about it for a minute. And they were like, I don't think so. And I was like, I existed 27 years before the first one of you showed up, and I was doing okay. Uh, I, don't, I don't need you. I, don't, I want you. That's so much better. Like, I don't need, like, if I need you, if I need my children, that's too much pressure for my kids. I need you to perform a certain way. I need you to behave a certain way. I need you to get into X, Y, and Z program or X, Y, and Z school or X, Y, and Z fellowship. I need you. No, I don't need you. I just want you. You know what my kids have given me? Uh, sleepless nights, a sore back from sleeping on their floor, a lot more gray hair, smaller bank account. And the same way, God's love is not, I love you so much because. It's not, I love you so much because I, I love the way that you pray. I love you so much because I, wa I love the way that you open up your Bible. I love you so much because you tithe on net or you tithe on gross. I love you so, no, it's I love you even though you're a knucklehead. I love you even though you screw up time and time again. I love you even though you add nothing to me. Do you see how that's way better than I love you because? I love you because means that we start climbing up towards him that we need to perform in order for him to like us. I love you even though is a father's love. See, I had, an, I had another conversation with one of my kids, and they had just willfully disobeyed and been very sinful, and they finally got it. Like, it, it clicked after a while of, of conversation and tantrum, uh, on my part, anyway. Uh, but it finally clicked that they, had, that they had disobeyed and that they were acting sinful, and like, broke. And that's good. That's the job of the law. The job of the law is to, to hold up a mirror to you and show you that you don't add up. But once you, once you understand that you don't add up, you can receive grace. And that's what I immediately, once they saw that they were, were sinful and disobedient, immediately met them with grace and said, I love you. You are absolutely forgiven. We can forget that this ever happened. But they, they looked at me and they were like, still not quite there. They, they weren't like whole yet. And so I probed a little bit further and they told me, like, I, I know you said you forgive me. I know that you forgive me, but I feel like I just, I can't forgive myself. One of my children, I, I just can't forgive myself. Like, I feel like I need to do something for you in order to make it up to you. And I was like, oh my goodness, how often do I tell that to God? But he doesn't want my macaroni artwork. He doesn't, like, it, it's, it's not giving anything to him. He just loves me because I'm his. And I was able to look at my kid and say, listen, I don't love you because of what you do and what you don't do. I love you because you're mine. There's nothing you can do to make me love you more or less. I love you because you're mine. And that is the heart of a father. And that I want to do something for you, that's the heart of pride. 
And pride is the root cause of all sin. See, love is free, but pride wants to earn it. Pride wants to do what's right in its own eyes. And pride began back in the garden. You remember the story of Adam and Eve. God gave them this amazing world that was just absolutely full of potential and then said, hey, I want you to work alongside of me to make this place amazing. I want you to work alongside of me to to create culture and to create civilization and I want you to work alongside of me to make music and to do all of these things. I'm giving you potential. I'm giving you potential and you work alongside of me and let's make it great. I want you to think honestly, try and imagine a world in which there was no sin and we were all living in a harmonious relationship with one another and with our God. Imagine how different our world would look. I wonder if you can even do it because I tried this week to like picture that world and I honestly... I couldn't do it because this is all I know. I love the idea of it. But instead of doing what was pleasing to God, instead of, instead of listening to his standards, they did what was right in their own eyes. It was just a little piece of fruit. It was, but it was a, an act of rebellion against their God. And actually, we have a news article here from the garden, couple follows their heart, billions dead. Um, that's obviously the Babylon Bee that wasn't, uh, that wasn't back in the garden. But, but they followed their heart. They did what was right in their own eyes. And, and, sni- and sin swept into the world. And now we have this mixed bag of beauty and chaos, good and evil. But what the the book of Proverbs is doing for us is it's showing us that this world is tough to navigate. And and the, the, the book of Proverbs is this gift to us because we have what Adam and Eve didn't have and that's the Holy Spirit and the Bible. And so we can look at the book of Proverbs and every time you make a moral decision, it's as if you're standing at the base of that tree saying, am I gonna do what's right in my own eyes or am I gonna fear the Lord and trust him? See, the fool does what's right in his own eyes. The wise man fears the Lord because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Isn't it interesting that that the first thing Adam and Eve did is recorded is that they made clothes for themselves to kind of hide themselves from one another and from God to like... See, our self-justification, our self-deception, it's intangible, so it's so easy to do it because we don't see it necessarily and eventually we can just convince ourselves that it's not even there. But imagine if every time we were self-deceived, like a magical item of clothing popped on, like, like it's not that big a deal, like nobody will ever know, like pop, I have this like magical hoodie that just appears on me. And then like, uh, I, I really deserve this. I'm gonna go for it and pop like another layer of clothing or you know, that guy, he deserves that. He's just getting what he deserves, like pop another layer of, like, I I feel like if our justifications were physical, were tangible, like, I think that we probably wouldn't be able to fit into this room because we'd all have so much clothes on, we wouldn't be able to fit through the doors. 
but it doesn't matter how many clothes you're wearing as you walk through an x-ray machine, it can see straight through it. And it doesn't matter how many self-justifications you give yourself, God sees your heart. You're, you're exposed before him, and he, he weighs your heart. But once you understand that your heart is a liar, and that God somehow mysteriously doesn't need you but loves you and wants you even though your heart is a deceiver? We need to, to implement some practical steps in order to guard ourselves against that self-deception. So I have four practical steps for you as we kind of come to a close as to how you can live wisely in a world that is difficult to navigate by implementing some real practical steps in order to guard yourself against self-deception. And step one is to know the word of God. To know the word of God. Believe the Bible more than you believe yourself. Believe God more than you believe you. Believe that you are absolutely loved. But believe that you are broken and that you can't trust yourself necessarily. But you can trust him because he's always only good. Here's your challenge. What kind of justifications do you make as to why you haven't read the whole Bible yet? Christian, what kind of justifications do you make as to why you haven't yet read the entire Bible? Generations past had an excuse. But the, the literacy rate in America right now is nearly 100%. And everybody has a Bible on their phone or accessible. And if you can't read, it'll read it to you. Why have you not read, read the entire Bible yet? There are people from 100 years ago or 200, 300 years ago who would have killed to get a Bible, or maybe more accurately, were killed for having a Bible, or translating a Bible, and we just can't seem to find the time. God weighs your heart. I want you to guess as to how long it takes to read the New Testament. In your heart, think, I wonder how long it takes to read the New Testament. At a comfortable reading pace, the New Testament takes 18 hours that's it. 18 hours. The entire Bible at a comfortable reading pace only takes about 72 hours to read in its entirety. You say, but I, don't, I read it and I don't understand it. And I say, that's because you're not reading it faithfully. Why would you think that you can dive into something that you've never read before and just understand it? Ancient ancient Mideastern uh, uh, text, why would you think that you can just get it off the bat? Why, like there are some things that are just really easy to understand, but why would you think that it, you're not gonna have to work at it a little bit? Stop making excuses. Let me help you. Let us help you. We would love, we have so many different Bible reading plans. Write it on your connection card. I would love to help you 
get into a Bible reading plan in which it takes you through. There is nothing like knowing the Word of God and the way that it reshapes your thoughts and reshapes your mind, the comfort that it gives. Know the Word of God. It's full of dumb people like you and me making dumb decisions and a faithful God who is with them throughout it all. And 1 Corinthians 10, 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul writes these words. Now these things happen to them as an example, talking about people from the Old Testament. These things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There it is again. Like, don't trust yourself. Dive into the word of God. Take heed lest you fall. So guard yourself against self-deception by bolstering your faith in reading the Bible. Number two, the second thing that you can do in order to guard yourself against deception is do the word of God. This is the point. Faith without works is dead. Bible reading that does not flow through your head, into your heart, and out your hands is useless. It just turns you prideful and arrogant. And God is going to, con he, he, he's going to weigh that as well. The last thing I want is a church full of bobbleheads where you, you have so much Bible knowledge, but you're not doing anything with it. Just tiny little weak bodies because you're not letting the word of God flow in and out and through you. The, the, the goal is to, to read the word and to motivate you towards action. As, as you see more clearly the God who has revealed himself through those pages, you're shaped by him, by the Holy Spirit, and turned more like him. James 1.22 he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Again, your heart wants to deceive you. There's a type of person who can spend an hour of day reading, uh, an hour a day reading the Bible and just totally useless, useless for the kingdom of God. But through Jesus, God is creating a new type of person, a new type of humanity who can live in such a way according to his standards that we can, we can reflect the kind of world that he desires to see, a world full of love and justice and peace and patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, selflessness, selflessness, trust and hope. It's defined by him, not our own flawed hearts. So know the word of God, do the word of God. Number three, seek wise counsel. Seek wise, godly counsel. This is why God didn't just save you, but saved a whole bunch of you to come together as the church. You should have somebody that you can trust, that you can talk to. I've literally invited men into my life and told them, hey, if you see garbage going on in my heart, will you call me out? That's the kind of relationship that the, that the gospel of grace affords you. You don't have to perform to earn his love. You don't have to perform to earn his favor. We can boast in our weakness because Jesus Christ meets us there with his grace. You need to have somebody who knows you well enough who can call you out when you're deceiving yourself.
Seek godly, wise counsel. And the last thing is repent often. John 1, uh, 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. There's that word again. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. When you believe in Jesus, it's not like your sin just completely goes away, but you're finally able to recognize it and you're finally able to repent of it and you're finally able to give it away and to, to, to let other people in to know that this is who I am and I am loved by God, but this is not who I want to be. I want to be more like Jesus. And you can repent freely, knowing that there is grace waiting for you. Adam and Eve looked at a tree and they did what was right in their own eyes and they plunged the world into sin. See, Jesus looked at a different tree, the cross. And instead of doing what was right in his own eyes, he said, not my will, but yours be done. May we be that kind of person. Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. He looked at that tree and he allowed us to nail him to the cross. And on that cross, he took the penalty that we deserved, paid for our sins, set us free so that we can be the type of person who can freely confess that we are weak, that we can know for sure that the holy God of the universe wants to adopt us into his family, loves us like that. That he poured out his judgment on Jesus so that we can be adopted in as a good father, that we don't have to perform for him. Jesus performed. And we get to just be and to strive to be more like Jesus. He rose again from the dead, guaranteeing us his love for us. There's a prayer as we close in Psalm 139. This one you probably have seen on a mug or something Christian kitschy. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. This is a prayer that I would encourage you to pray often. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You can't pray that prayer if you believe that your faith depends on your performance because you know your heart. And that's a terrifying prayer to pray if you believe that you have to earn something. Search me, O oh God. God who knows everything, the depths of my soul, search me. But if you've been set free by Jesus Christ, then you can pray that prayer with boldness saying, I know that you're always only good. I know that you're my father and you want the best for me. 
Search me, oh God. I don't want to be like this anymore. I want to be more free. I want to be more like you. For that to blow your mind, you need to realize just how wicked your little heart can be. And you need to realize that God looks at that heart and he says, that's what I want. I want that. I love you and I want you. Will you look to him? Will you repent, confess that you are a sinner in need of his salvation, in need of a rescuer? Will you do that if you've never done that this morning? Let's pray. Holy Father, you are amazing. Your steadfast love endures forever. You are completely and totally self-sufficient. You are grace. You are hope. You are peace. You are goodness. You are the pinnacle of our thoughts. And we confess that we fall so woefully short of your glory. Thank you so much for the freedom that we are offered through your grace. And God, as we look to you, help us not to do what is right in our own eyes. Lord, help us to invite you to weigh our hearts. Lord, help us to see our, our selfish and, and blind motivations. Help us to give us the freedom to invite other people in to call us out. God, thank you for your peace. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you that for some reason you love us and you desperately you, you want us despite all of who we are. God, help us not to look to our earthly fathers as deficient as they were and put them onto you but help us to look first to you and to know that you are the, the, the father who loves the father God, the father who, who in the story of the prodigal lifts up his robe and runs to the son and embraces him after knowing all that he did Jesus thank you for who you are and what you have done on our behalf. Holy Spirit, thank you for opening our eyes to the mercy and grace offered to us in Jesus Christ that connects us back to our Father from whom we have been estranged. God, thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.